You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 11th of July 2021 on Monocle 24. Good morning, we're live in London and Zurich and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Emma Nelson, welcome. And coming up on today's programme, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, is in San Moritz for us, bringing us the later from, latest from the sunshine and the nice fresh air. Also ahead, my panellists, Latika Burke and Rob Cox, will sift through the news and they're threatening to turn the programme into a sporting special. What have you seen, Latika? Emma, in the New York Times today, a thorny question for Joe Biden. Haiti asks for more troops to help stay stabilise the country following the assassination of its president last week. But the US president is in no hurry to involve America in another overseas mission. Thanks, Latika. We'll also head to Ljubljana for the latest from our Balkans correspondent. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in Slovenia. People here are voting in a referendum today, and it's all about water. I'll be looking at why that's happening and what it could mean for one of Europe's greenest countries. And Tessa Shishkovitz, the UK correspondent for Profil, will be here to tell us what's in her magazine this week. It's the 11th of July, 2021, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. First, a quick roundup of today's main news headlines. G20 finance ministers meeting in Venice have endorsed a policy to standardise the tax rate for corporations globally at a minimum of 15%. The US peace envoy to Afghanistan says he's returned to Doha to try to pursue a peace deal between the Taliban and the Afghan government. A district in eastern Germany has declared the country's first cyber disaster after a hacking attack on its official computer systems. And a pro-democracy organisation in Hong Kong is laying off all its employees because of what it's are increasing legal and political risks. And that's a quick look at the headlines, but let's begin today's programme high up in the Swiss Alps. Our editorial director, Tyler Brule, is in San Moritz for us. Good morning, Tyler. How are you? Good morning, Emma. Very, very well. Looking out over the glistening lake this morning, beautiful green mountains, a little bit of uh, snow on the top. As you know, we've had a lot of rain in this stretch of Europe, so it's been snowing some evenings above 2,700 metres. A few puffy clouds. Uh, actually, they're not, not a cow in sight, at least from my, uh, my current uh, vantage point. My heart aches for that. Now, look, um, British television, I'm looking now, is currently carrying an interview with a ball boy from the 1966 World Cup final. I've been told that in Dufourstrasse 90, Rob Cox is wearing his running gear. Can you, can you raise the tone a little bit for us, Tyler, to tell us what you've been doing this week? I, I, I can, and uh, I know what uh, Rob Cox's running outfit looks like. It is going, <laughs> but I have to say, it is going to be... Uh, Bonkers, I think, uh, certainly in, in Zurich, probably all over uh, Switzerland, of course. Uh, you know, Emma, that uh, they, they refer to the, the second generation of Italians as the secondi uh, in, uh, in Switzerland. It, it is uh, going to be lots of tricolore um, all over the streets. The, the Swiss police said last time around, if Switzerland would have made it to the semifinals, uh, that uh, they would they would have said you know, no more cur- no well they'll have to, they'll have to be curfews but you can pretty much honk all night if you want I think they'll have to do the same this evening but let's park football um, yes please to one to one side for a moment <laughs> because we'll we'll have another fifty minutes of that uh, 
for sure. But uh, up here, though, uh, I'm supposed to make my way back to Zurich because I probably will be going to a football events this evening. Uh, but it's actually because of all of this rain, a lot of Switzerland is also cut off uh, today. Uh, you know, many parts of the country landslides overnight. Uh, if you wanted to get in and out of Engelberg, uh, for example, Emma, you wouldn't be in much in much luck because uh, a big landslide has taken out part of the road and, and the rail tracks as well. So if you asked, I love these traffic reports that you give us. They're, they're wonderful. They're, they're incredibly specific. Um, what If you were to be stuck in San Moritz this afternoon, what would you suggest that we'd be doing then? Because there's plenty to be getting on with. Well, there, there, there is this plenty. There's, there's a jazz festival, which is going to be running for the next uh, few weeks. Uh, and of course, this is slightly sort of jazz season right now because you've had Montreux happening. Uh, there's a festival coming up in Stade as well. But uh, it's, it's incredible to see the number of artists that have flown in from around the world over the coming weeks uh, for the jazz festival. I only heard it from afar. I was parked on a nice uh, lake uh, most of yesterday. Um, and also for the past few days, the Nomad Art Festival um, is, is also uh, running at the moment. I will be heading over there while you're talking football with our other guests. And uh, we'll give you an update from there. But that's, this normally runs in the wintertime. Um, of course, things being cancelled, they decided to bring it back for summer. And you've had exhibitors coming in from Mexico City, Beirut, London, and, and many other points as well. So um, I'll, I'll maybe sort of do a little, little twirl around there and uh, see what we can buy for your walls. That would be absolutely beautiful. I mean, it, it's a reflection of the fact that people are getting on with life and life is opening up because there's quite a lot of um, coverage, at least in the Austrian and the Swiss papers today, about how personal responsibility seems to be the way forward. There's a, I know that the Tagus Anzeiger is using the example of what's happening here in the United Kingdom where Boris Johnson wants to live all the remaining coronavirus protection restriction measures next week. And Swiss and Austrian papers and voices are saying, OK, well, we need to be doing this too as well. It has to go back to personal responsibility. Absolutely. And of course, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a narrative uh, from here for the last year and a half, that, that, that being Switzerland. It's, it's been very much the view, not just of the cantons, but certainly the federal council in Switzerland, that yes, uh, the government can uh, erect all kinds of, of barriers and measures, etc. But you know, it's part of the society that uh, you also have to pick yourself up. You have to look out for yourself. You have to look out for others. Uh, and that is a large part of what governs the country. But yes, you're now seeing this um, across the border as well. I believe you have a nice quote as well from the Chancellor. I don't know if you have it to hand, but it was something that we picked up um, on air. Because I don't think we can ever get through um, a program certainly on a Sunday morning out of this part of the world without, without mentioning schnitzel. I can't get through anything without mentioning schnitzel, at least once a day, uh, Tyler. You, you know me too well. Um, yes, it's Sebastian Kurtz, the Austrian, um, the Austrian Chancellor, saying you can eat 10 schnitzel a day or climb the rock face at 140 kilos without the state standing down and securing the rope. Um, I think I still would need some help securing the rope, the amount of schnitzel I've piled, piled through in the last couple of weeks. But it's that idea that um, actually you can possibly embrace your full Austrian identity um, with you know in, in absolute freedom. <laughs> Indeed, I think it's it's interesting that we're seeing the chancellor, uh, of course, pull that pull this out now. But I think we'll we'll be hearing more government uh, say saying the same thing. Of course, we've seen in the UK, and we've we've heard it from elsewhere that this is a time where this is is maybe not a state disaster. Uh, this becomes a, a personal illness issue. The state is there for you, but you're going to have to take the appropriate measures. So the Austrians are saying it. They've been saying it. Uh, here for a while as well. Uh, and of course, we've had similar murmurings from, from of course, um, the UK. Uh, yeah, you can probably take a mixed view um, as to you know how the US um, is handling this. But it, it seems to be going in the same direction. 
maybe some leaders not being quite as explicit about it. What's quite interesting, though, is that friends of mine in Austria seem to have taken the last year as an opportunity to completely rebuild their hotels. This has been a year of opportunity for them, for renovation and for renewal. Um, Regardless of the style choices that they've made, you do get the impression that um, while things were quiet, instead of sitting and waiting for things to happen, uh, many people in the hospitality sector were just getting on in sprucing things up again. Absolutely. And a lot of incentive programs to go with it. In, in Sudtirol, uh, you've had these 110% uh, loans uh, and, and grants that have been, been offered to, of course, chart up properties to also shore up um, the trades as well to make sure that uh, someone who is in roofing or you're building chimneys or you're doing parquet floors, uh, that you, of course, uh, be able to, to be employed in this period. And, and it's the same thing. I mean, you see this, you know, really all over the place. A lot of property that have you know thrown open the doors whether it's the small cafe whether it is the restaurant whether it's the family hotel or, or even a multinational chain uh, there's all bit, you know and it's not just a lick of paint i mean you've seen major reconstruction even the the little lake that i mentioned yesterday uh, last time i was there with uh, with our sophie grove uh, and and some other editors it was a little bit rickety uh, the the dock sort of jutting out into the lake um, it is now absolutely perfect redone um, of course, all of the um, at the expense that happen. I think the taxpayers are happy to pay for it as well uh, from from the local gemeinde. Uh, which is it's it's inspired mixed feelings in me at least because there is always something rather charming about something rickety. Maybe not something that's going to lead you directly into a very deep lake, but there is all that that, that the warmth of a the warmth of a wooden balcony in an in, in an alpine sun is is something that's absolutely irresistible. And I wonder whether people are actually deciding to preserve. The, the style and what makes areas so 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 beautiful, or, or is there, have there been some decent choices of, of renovation here? I know a couple of the ones that I have seen have gone a bit more metal and a bit more. What are you doing? Mm, indeed, and this is where we we love that German word Denkmalschutz uh, <laughs> to 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 protect and and to preserve and to have something listed uh, as well. Now, I'm not sure that uh, that wooden balconies uh, come into the equation. The good thing is, I was when I was in Vorarlberg last year. The, the wooden balcony, uh, the, the idea of having a loggia, uh, this is still very much part of even the modern vernacular as well. But I know what you're saying about those sort of ugly, occasionally spindly-looking um, metal balconies. We, we don't want of those. We don't want any of those uh, in in the Alpine um, region. I, I think it's also a challenge as as well, as you said. You know, why do you go to an Alpine environment? Because you want all of those trappings. There, there are certain design codes that you expect. And of course, if you maybe if you live there year round, you want to feel like, oh, you know, I saw something in a nice magazine um, in Lisbon. Let's bring a bit of that uh, to the Alps as well. I would say, no, no, no. That, that's certainly not what your visitors want. Tyler Brule, thank you so much. Tyler will be hot-footing it across San Moritz. He'll be joining us in about uh, a little over 40 minutes' time, Tyler. So off you go. Uh, let's introduce today's panellists now. I'm joined in the studio here in London by Latika Burke, a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and the H. Good morning, Latika. Good morning, Emma. And a lot to answer for, Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking News, has decided to turn up to Dufourstrasse 90 in his running kit. Well, I tried to kill two birds with one stone. I wanted to go for a run this morning, and that you were—I figured it was right. I'd be able to come through Dufourstrasse on my way back home. I didn't anticipate I would be quite so 
uh, sweaty and disgusting, to which I apologize to our producer here, uh, Desi. But um, no, uh, feeling really genki and uh, and uh, excited about uh, the day as a result. All right. So we do have to mention the, the, the small issue that this t- this today is quite a big sporting event here in Europe, at least. Um, how, what's, the, what's the mood there, Rob? I mean, are you feeling match fit? Obviously you are because you've, you're, you are in the, in the state that you've just described. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm really excited. The two W's, Wimbledon and Wembley today. Um, it's going to be a pretty big day for sports enthusiasts. You've got Wimbledon uh, at at three o'clock uh, Central Time. It's Matteo Berrettini, who's the first Italian actually to make it to the finals, first male Italian to make it to the finals against number one Djokovic. Uh, pretty big match. I mean, number one versus number seven. Djokovic is a is a mean creature, so it won't be easy. Um, but then later in the day, of course, uh, not far from where you are, we'll see the big uh, the big head up between Italy and England. And uh, I mean, everybody. In Europe is rooting for Italy, it seems, except for the people on that uh, storied island on which you all find yourselves right and, now. And not everybody on that storied island as well. <laughs> ask ask us anybody in Scotland, and they 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 give you a look. <laughs> it, it is one of those things, isn't it, Litty? Because there's a jo- there's a joke map going round at the moment, isn't there? That basically, if you take the whole of Europe. Everybody has got an Italian flag attached to them in terms of support, but there is a little slice of the southern half of the British Isles, <laughs> which is shouting, come on England, at the top of its voice. And it's, are we in a sad state of affairs here that no matter what England does at the minute, even if you do have a super-duper football t- team run by a really nice man with inspiring, humble players, everyone still hates us? <laughs> Look, I think if England does indeed bring football home tonight, uh, the continental display of emotion will be quite something to watch because (laughs) if they win it straight after Brexit, I mean, gosh, the narrative in the Tory press will write itself, right? Um, Look, I personally don't see or understand this dislike of England for all, all the jokes England is the home of football. It created this marvellous game that, in my view, is the only way I've ever seen English men display emotion, particularly publicly. (laughs) And I really, really, I fell in love with this game when I lived here in 2002. Very young girl, 17 years old. World Cup was on. And I worked for a a company out the back of Wembley Stadium. And every game football was on or or when England was playing, we're allowed to take that morning off or, or a couple of hours and go down to the pub together and watch it. And that's when I understood what this game means to England. And I think it's a little churlish to deny England their moment when they have a team as stellar and good-natured and unifying as this one. You're quite right, Latika. I mean, this is the moment when... I'm reading all the articles about England, Rob, and I'm not reading them about, you know, who's playing on the left wing and who's, you know, what, how, you know, whether Harry Kane is going to be the top goal scorer. I'm reading for stuff from with Gareth Southgate. How does he fix problems? How does he sort mentalities out? How does he inspire his team? And, and last night um, in their pre-match um, press thingy, um, Harry Kane was was asked about why the teams were being so nice about each other, that they were actually complimenting each other and that Gareth Southgate was saying, please don't boo the Italian national anthem. And Harry Kane came back and just went, because we don't do that anymore. We don't, we aren't mean about each other. We don't publicly attack each other. We do it on the pitch instead. And suddenly we thought, he's elevating, you know, the beautiful game to something that actually could be quite inspiring to, to more than just people in a pub getting excited and shouting. 
I think it's back to British good manners, which uh, which I don't think have been displayed over the past few decades on at football matches and things like that. But but I think I don't think there's I think it's kind of nice to see this is about a team. You've got a, a leader in the team in Gareth Southgate. You've got you don't you do have superstar players, but it doesn't come across as like I don't know you know like there are a couple of people that matter. It feels like you know a very interesting multicultural multi ethnic team that's quite represented of modern England today and and I think that's I I think it's the, the only problem I have Emma honestly is Sweet Caroline. I, I am so done with that song. <laughs> I'm a Yankees fan. I, well, come on. I'm a Yankees fan. This thing came out in Fenway Park in the Red Sox. This is baseball. I mean, so when, all of a sudden I hear this and it completely turns me. I'm like, wait a minute. You guys are Red Sox fans? What's going on in England? Um, other than that, that, that would be the only bias I have against the English team. I, I must say, I agree with that, Emma. It's absolutely baffling. We have no idea. Apparently, it's got something to do with the way that the song is built, that it sort of gets into your head. It's what the Germans would describe as an earworm, or- an, an earworm, and in you go. <laughs> and, bra- and basically, it's not hard to sing. So if you don't have the most uh, receptive brain to challenge, at least <laughs> you can you can you can just about get. The, the lyrics out, although they've it's the they've bomb, changed it. bomb, bomb. I think that's the thing that, that everybody can get up, get a you know, even if you cannot sing and you can barely speak, you can somehow put out a bomb, bomb, bomb. Um, but you know, other than that, uh, I, I wish England well. Thank you. Uh, I don't know why I'm saying thank you. I'm, no idea. I'm taking, I take quite a light touch interest in football. Um, Latika Rob was making a really good point that it's a nice group of men, nice, um. Uh, manager representing all walks of life and there have been some really really direct comparisons drawn between the British government dare we say it and the way that the England team have held themselves together and indeed embraced social issues we've got the likes of Marcus Rashford who took on the government and won when it came to feeding uh, poor school children we've taken we've seen um, Raheem Sterling whose image has been transformed from bad boy outside a rebel to the guy who took on racism and won. And then we see Gareth Southgate, the manager, who in 1996 was, you know, his shirt was the one that no one wanted to buy in the shops and he now becomes the most inspiring man. Taking leadership and taking um, taking the societal issues and doing perhaps something that the government just can't do. But I think there's always been a long history of this popular culture, sports, taking on issues that politics seems incapable or unwilling of of addressing. And you're right, there's no starker example of this than I think uh, taking the knee, which the Foreign Secretary of Britain, uh, Dominic Raab, thought was a Game of Thrones reference. He understood it uh, that well. And the English football team have, have received a lot of criticism for doing this. It's only a couple of seconds at the start of the game, but it is significant and it's also symbolic. It doesn't address the systemic issues that that they're raising awareness of, no. But other things that Raheem Sterling has done are, and certainly the tone and the leadership that Gareth Southgate is able to set uh, are as well. And I think this was all very underlined last week when England won their match uh, against Denmark and Pretty Patel, who's been one of the biggest critics of this team, uh, released this photo of herself in the English football match. And I might say it's one of the most unflattering photos I've seen of a politician upload of themselves, but, but I digress. 
And that, I thought, really underlined the hypocrisy here of a team that has been willing to brave what has been a lot of substantial backlash from people who don't feel that this represents English nationalism as such, but I think are becoming increasingly silent as the team succeeds and show uh, shows that it is capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. And I think even if they don't win tonight, the changes that they have instituted here, the way they've done it and the tone they've set are going to be quite substantial and lasting changes in English society. And I hope that is. I mean, yesterday, my my son, I spend a lot of my time when I'm not behind the microphone on the side of a football pitch in London watching my nine-year-old now pretending to be Gareth Southgate. It's really funny. Yesterday, he took a penalty. He won. Um, (laughs) Scored. He shot. He scored. And he went and he hugged his teammates and then he went and commiserated with the opposite team who didn't score the penalty. And I thought that's because he's been watching modern day football where you teach kids to show up and you teach kids to be gentlemen and ladies on the pitch um, and, it, and and there's a really interesting article in the Sunday Telegraph today which talks about how they have now got a system of education within the Premier League for these bright and gifted young kids who 10-15 years ago would have been told that their brains were in their feet and then if they didn't make it to the top team by the age of 16. That was it. They were cut loose and and they already got themselves into a bit of trouble by that stage. But nowadays they're sending kids who otherwise would have had no opportunity to top private schools and at least one Premier League team that sends its kids to a top private school in the morning, drives them on a terrible bus across the city and takes them to, to train them in the afternoon. When they get people to go in and say, look, you're 10 years old, Tell us what it's like on the pitch. Bring us some dreams. Make us connect with you emotionally and, you know, know that you're a bit of a role model. And it's really gratifying to see, isn't it, Rob, that people are taking the the issue of football not as just something that was a sort of a, 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 gr- a grim battle, but something that actually enacts societal change. Yeah, I mean, that's how sport should be viewed, don't you think? I mean, that is, you know, it is about camaraderie. It's about cooperation. It's about collaboration. It's about fitness. It's, I mean, you know, it's not just about, I don't know, drinking beer, getting in fights or whatever it is that, you know, I grew up playing ice hockey. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I understand that. But it's, uh, I think it is great. And, and you know, you, you sort of reference some of the other stuff, the way the, I don't want to call it politics, but this question about taking the knee before the game, which in the United States became this giant, you know, cultural war. Um, you know, I think I, my guess is that the British team is going, or UK, the England team is going to do that today. Is is that right? And mm-hmm. and I think Italy is basically decided. I think what they did with Belgium, uh, and I imagine they'll do that tonight. Is they do whatever the op- the opposition team, you know, in respect for the other team, will also take the knee. And it's. I don't think it's going to be some sort of cultural battle. I don't think people are going to. And these are, you know, Italy is not the most multicultural country in Europe by any stretch. Um, I don't know. Uh, this idea of solidarity of humankind is, you know crazy concept, but why shouldn't we come out of a <laughs> pandemic um, with some sense of that? Well, let's shatter that uh, illusion immediately, Rob, and talk about travel. <laughs> Latika. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anybody trying to leave the United Kingdom at the moment to travel outside to go and have a bit of fun is finding themselves with quite a lot of closed doors that, that I think the rest of Europe at least is recognising that a fourth wave of coronavirus, if your tourists are coming from that place. Latika, you've noticed, haven't you, that, that Europe is introducing more restrictions and as a result 
doors are closing. Emma, this is something I watch very, very closely because there's so much intersection between global mobility and coronavirus and various governments' responses. And of course, I'm Australian. Um, it's it's basically impossible for me to get into my own country. Uh, such is the nature of restrictions that they've imposed. Now, Europe has always paid the price for not having a border policy like Australia, which of course is far, far away in an island and, and can do this. And it has also sought uh, or really struggled, I think, with this balance between one of the most dependent economies for some countries, and that's tourism, and wanting to welcome people back, but also protect their own populations from the health risk of coronavirus. Now, I went away three times last year, and it's very, very evident that without vaccines, it's got, it was easier to travel last year than it is going to be for the bulk of us this year, when ironically, we have more protection from coronavirus than we've ever had. And this is really becoming evident on the continent. There's a, a paper, a story in The Guardian this morning uh, in, in The Guardian newspaper about Malta, which was one of the first to open its doors, now saying we are closing our borders to anyone who doesn't have proof of a double vaccination. That's quite extreme because it rules out family groups because children in the UK, of course, are not being vaccinated. Now, other jurisdictions across Europe are also closing uh, things like nightclubs. We're seeing that in Catalonia, in Spain. And we're also seeing uh, some restrictions reintroduced in Portugal, which the government in the UK was, was, that was the first country that people were allowed to travel to on the green list without quarantining when they came home. So I think if you're trying to travel this summer, and let's face it, most of us here in the UK have had a pretty shocking year. And if you didn't get away last year, you're really, really due for a holiday right now. I'm not sure it's going to be as easy and it's certainly not going to be very cheap because the the hidden costs in the delays that this uh, these schemes involve, which is verifying your your you know PCR tests, verifying your vaccinations, and then also of course when you're coming back into England, you have to have two tests regardless of what country you're travelling to uh, or coming home from. So. Travel, I think, increasingly over the next few years is going to be something that's not easy or available for those on lower incomes. And I think governments do need to think about that quite seriously because we don't want to see a country where only wealthier people can afford to travel. Rob, are you getting any impression that the situation is remotely comparable where you are and across Europe, or is this just something that is peculiarly British? I, th- I think I'd be really interested to see, you know, whether as we, you know, if you read the targets and Saiga today, you have the Swiss Retail Federation saying we need to be able to take our masks off, we need to be able to do what we can. Um, Sebastian Kurtz, as our editorial director mentioned a little earlier, on Tyler was talking about the fact that Sebastian Kurtz says it's up to you now. You can eat ten schnitzels a day, or or or. or or, or, you know, shin down a, down a cliff face weigh, weighing 140 kilos. It's up to you. Yeah, I, I think the UK has been very, very unique in its in the way it's dealing with this. I mean, you now have the ability for Brits who have been double vaccinated to kind of travel. But those of us here who've been double vaccinated or cannot go to Britain, and I've got, you know, more of my staff in the UK than anywhere else. I've got a ticket. I've been waiting to go in, in, in hopefully the start of August. I just don't see that happening. Um, and and I, I don't quite understand it. It doesn't, it's sort of, sort of a double standard. Um, and yet you're opening up and uh, pubs and everything are open. It's just, it's just bonkers. But the rest of Europe, uh, I, look, I think you know, there is this sense that if you've been vaccinated, and I mean, you really should, this is the time to start with the sticks. We've had the carrots. You've been, there lots of carrots out there, and the U.S. is, is no, is in the same boat, where you've, people who, 
anyone who basically wanted to get vaccinated or could could get vaccinated. Now you have people who've decided they're not going to vaccinate. Now that's just stupid and insensitive, and it's time to start wielding the stick. If you can't, you're not going to be able to get on a plane. You're not going to be able to go to a Yankee Stadium. You're not going to be able to go to the the football match. You're not going to be able to go into the pub. I think it's just time to start being a little bit of a badass at this point because. You know, it's for all of our benefit that we have, you know, mass vaccinations. Do you think we'll go for a badass approach here in London, in the in the UK? I, I doubt it, Latika, because those who don't want to get vaccinated just get tested, and and then that's that. They don't. They, that's just not for them. Well, picking up on that point of, of Rob's, one of the interesting thing we're seeing now is domestic vaccine passports by stealth. So, in some of the countries I've just mentioned, there, Portugal, for example, they're now requiring you to have this proof of either the negative PCR test or the double vaccination uh, proof of, of a pass before you can go into things like theatres or restaurants. Now, that just being introduced very hastily, very suddenly and probably without much debate or permission necessarily from the society. We're already seeing that refloated in the British press and there's quite a strong backlash to that in, in the in the political class here. I do think we're going to see a lot more of this. Now, there's some really interesting statistics in the Times of London today where younger men are really not taking up the vaccine. And so they're sending out a special pop-up clinic to Wembley Stadium today. Go to the footy, get your vaccination and, and, and do that. So I think it has to be a bit of both the carrot and the stick, but I certainly can see this situation where vaccine passports become a norm, not with any debate, not with any permission even from the society, but just an expectation. And people who are refusing to get vaccinated, of course, that's their right to do. But that doesn't mean life should be made as easy for them as someone who has taken out protection for their own good and also for the good of society. Rob and Latika will be with you in a little while, but we'll be finding out what's on the pages of Austria's Profil magazine in just a moment. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Monocle's July-August issue marks the return of our Quality of Life special edition that is guaranteed to get you in the mood for sun and for summer. Dive in for a look at everything from the year's urban winners to the tourist hotspots eagerly awaiting the return of travel. In the affairs section, we've tweaked our annual Quality of Life survey slightly this year to bring you the world's 20 most livable cities, the ones that we think are best placed to prosper post-pandemic. Hop in while the water's warm and order your copy of Monocle's July-August issue today or subscribe to get instant access to our digital editions. Head to monocle.com for more. Ten twenty nine in Vienna, nine twenty nine here in London. Let's continue on Monocle on Sunday with a look at what's on the front pages of a brand new edition of Austria's Profil magazine. Joining me on the line is Tessa Shishkovitz, the publication's UK correspondent. Good morning, Tessa. Yeah, good morning, Emma. Good to have you with us. Um, let's dive straight into the front cover of Profil about the dangers of inflation. Yes, it's, of course, a very topical cover, not only for Austria. Although in Austria, the uh, threat of um, inflation is a bit higher at the moment than uh, in general in the Eurozone. So we have 2.8% in May and in the EU about 2%. But it's also less than in the US where we have at the moment 5%. So the discussion is what should the central banks do now because the combination of the threat of inflation and low interest rates 
um, will mean that people who have their money in their banks and are savers will actually lose um, lose a lot of, of, of their of their saved uh, money. And, you know, in Austria and in Germany in particular, um, people like to save and are reluctant to invest in, for example, real estate, which could now be a good way to invest money safely with good returns or or also, you know, the, the, it, at the moment, it's really a big uh, uh, question also what you can recommend people to do in the situation in that we are in now. So I mean, we, you, you describe two situations. There. We've got 2.8% inflation in Austria, slightly above the target of what most central banks are after. But you mentioned in the United States, I mean, inflation was, what, 5% in May. That, that could really destabilize it for everybody. Well, yes. And so the, the discussion between the economists now and the central bank um, leaders, uh, presidents, is if it's a temporary uh, 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 phenomenon, which is the result of the economy is now reopening, people go and spend their money. But of course, you have a lot of still problems with deliveries of goods that are stuck in in, in the production line. There's a high, uh, there's a big problem with computer chips, for example. So we are in a, a bit of a bind now. So people like Christine Lagarde of the European Central Bank thinks it's a temporary phenomenon, and um, we should sort of the central banks should sit it out and not raise interest rates because if you raise interest rates and you make it more expensive to to borrow money, uh, then you also threaten the economy, uh, the the revival, the recovery of the economy. So the Profil has lots of experts that they interviewed, pros and cons, it's quite interesting, and also portraits of people who are now sort of in full swing in the middle of July in order to, you know, bankers, experts, uh, accountants who give advice to people what to do. So it's not a quiet July cover, I have to say. It's more sort of in the middle of the the thickness of the fight for uh, looking at economic uh, advantages and uh, uh, possibilities to, to, to go out of this lockdown with new options uh, financially. It's a very useful thing to take down to the Baderplatz of a Sunday afternoon when you're, when you're contemplating what to do with all your savings. Yeah, as, <laughs> as we have, you know, Austria is also gripped by the murder of a 13-year-old girl who was uh, horrifically raped and murdered by um, asylum-seeking uh, young men from Afghanistan. And so we have a big debate in Austria which is fueled by our right-wing populist government about uh, shall, uh, shall uh, asylum seekers should be um, deported quicker when their asylum is not granted or should the society, the government, rather seek to integrate them better? So there's a big debate about uh, classical political lines going on. And my colleague, um, Edith Meinhardt, here discusses this and says, um, 
if the Taliban takes over the whole of Afghanistan, what will we do? We cannot deport people there at all. And if we do, then basically we are giving also with the, the EU will support countries with um, with uh, with uh, monies that um, that you give for integration of asylum seekers in their countries of origin. And we would basically give this money directly to an Islamist terror group. And so this this debate is is very difficult because you know this young girl. Um, was murdered in a really, really awful way, and and the anger is understandable. But on the other hand, of course, you have to weigh uh, what human rights you give everyone without looking at where they come from. And you have to weigh the the, the effect on Austrian society as well. I mean, I mean, in profil that you have a question saying that you know, hopefully, righteous Afghans, good, you know, well-behaved Afghans who work or who are at school will not become. Um, ostracized or stigmatized because of what has happened in this one individual case. But I remember about six years ago when the when the asylum um, crisis, with the migrant crisis, was at, was at its height, and they, they were placing Afghans in sort of uh, in hotels and in centres right across Austria to try to cope with this influx of people. And there was a sense of discomfort at that point. I mean, have things improved? Is there a sense that if you arrived from Afghanistan and you find yourself in need, that you will have a welcome in Austria? Well, this is the debate. I mean, it's now six years after the 2015 refugee crisis, and a lot of Afghans came. And as you say, you know, the vast majority, I think 94% um, have integrated well. And there's a small group of especially young men who come from via Iran and via countries where they have been on the road for a long time, have not grown up with parents, have now spent a few years in asylum procedures in Austria. And there's, um, you know, if you look at the statistics, these Afghan young men have a higher rate than other immigrants uh, in um, sexual violence. And so one of the things my colleague discusses in her article also is that if you are a rich country with good employment chances and a democratic system, you will always get immigrants and you just have no choice. You can't close your borders. You do have to try to understand the cultural context that people come from and take special care of that. So, for example, the treatment of women in Afghanistan in the traditional society, but also under the particular um, conditions that the Taliban creates for women, will make it more complicated to adapt to an Austrian environment where women obviously are sort of equal and free and can do what they want and also can say no to a man. So we have to look at this cultural context and and just put more effort into um, showing the advantages of free democratic societies to young men who just don't know how to cope with it. Tessa Shishkovic, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. We head to the Balkans in a moment in Monocle on Sunday. What kind of city do you want to live in? Every week on The Urbanist, we delve into the biggest questions about urban living and meet the people championing change in our cities. From star architects to designer sauruses, protected views to landfills, river walks and sidewalks, wayfinding and cycle highways. The city is alive and kicking, so how can we make them better places to live in? 
The other great city creation, of course, is sex. Young people go to cities to have a good time and to enjoy themselves and to meet their life partners and maybe a few other people on the way. Join me, Andrew Tuck, every Thursday at 20 hundred hours London time for a brand new episode. Or subscribe to the podcast and listen as you go. The Urbanist, the show that knows its good mares from its planning nightmares. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday. I'm Emma Nelson. Welcome. We're off to Ljubljana now to hear from our correspondent in the Balkans. Good morning, Guy Delorny. How are you? I'm very good, Emma Nelson. Thank you very much indeed. It's very sunny and warm here today. Good. I'm glad someone's got that. Um, you want to talk to us about a water referendum. Now, come on, you've got to thrill us with that story. When I said, oh, when I was told that Guy wants to talk about water referendums, I was like, right, OK, D- off you go. <laughs> well, well, it's not every day you have a referendum, for starters. Uh, and, and, and British people have, have learned that, uh, that holding referendums is a potentially perilous thing. Uh, but of course, in Slovenia, like quite a lot of other countries in the region, they actually have uh, a law uh, which is enshrined in the constitution, which says if you get a, a certain number of signatures on a petition, you can trigger a referendum. And so you get some quite recherche topics which end up being uh, put to referenda. And this time round, it, it is, as you say, amendments to the Water Act. Now, you might think this, this doesn't sound terribly sexy, and you may have a point. However, um, in 2016, Slovenia actually enshrined the right to clean drinking water in its constitution. Uh, so the Prime Minister at the time said that water was liquid gold. Slovenia was blessed uh, with water resources, which uh, foreign powers and international companies, naughty, naughty, might want to get their grubby little fingers on. So they were enshrining this protection in the constitution, and uh, that was going to be inviolable until, of course, the current government came along, made amendments to the Water Act, which suggested that you could uh, develop along waterways, and uh, environmentalists took fright and triggered this referendum. Is this a sort of a passionate subject for Slovenians? I know that, you know, an afternoon by Lake Bled is 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 an important thing for a Slovenian soul. Absolutely it is. Uh, not just Lake Bled, but they would go uh, stand-up paddle boarding on Lake Bohin. They would go uh, whitewater kayaking uh, down the Socha River. All of these things very, very close to Slovenian people's hearts. I mean, they are very outdoorsy people. Uh, 60% of the country is covered with forest. And they do like to boast that within an hour or an hour and a half of Ljubljana, uh, you can be up a mountain, at the sea, by a lake, along a river. You've got all of that in this very small country. It is very, very lush, verdant, green, and indeed blue with this water. And you see this when you look at the sports teams of Slovenia. Instead of the rather generic Slavic tricolor, which they have as their flag, which is unfortunately virtually identical to the flag of Slovakia, uh, the the sports teams of Slovenia wear this beautiful green, white, and blue kit uh, with the representation of Triglav Mountain on it in a series of zigzags and uh, it's it's one of the most noticeable kits in uh, in, in world sport although of course uh, you don't necessarily see that much of it no um but i shall look it up because i'm sure it sounds absolutely beautiful um look if you have all this natural beauty you're going to want to to, to enjoy it yourselves and the slovenians are going to get what is it a hundred euros per head in order to enjoy a bit of domestic tourism how, 
how far can a hundred euros take you if you if you're after a bit of touristic fun, guy? Well, it'll get, it'll get you a couple of nights in a in, in a farm stay. Uh, that 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 would be a good start, wouldn't it? But uh, I actually used last year's tourism voucher, which was two hundred euros. So this year they're giving you one hundred euros for adults, fifty for children. Last year it was two hundred and fifty, um, and uh, they they they've given you until the end of the year to spend all of that because there was, funnily enough, what with there being a pandemic on, uh, the the the, U, the uptake of them was reasonably limited last year. I think only about a third of them uh, were actually used. But the, the hope was that you would boost your domestic tourism, which was obviously not going to get um, all of the international visitors as usual. You would give it a boost by giving people these vouchers. So, I mean, you can get a pretty nice... I mean, I've spent my voucher on a on, on a, a really nice cottage in the Socha Valley uh, a few weeks ago, and that was, I think, about... Um, it was about 200 a night. So my, my 200 got us one of the nights... Uh, at the uh, at this 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 lovely cottage in the Socha Valley, overlooking uh, Most Nasochi and the reservoir there, this beautiful azure water, uh, absolutely spectacular scenery and a beautiful place to spend your time. It sounds absolutely heavenly, Guy Delorney. Um, finally, tell us about. Um, apparently, Croatia has had a very famous stork-related love affair. Um, I must confess. It's not something that's crossed my world yet. So, could you I, tell us tell us about the storks in Croatia, Guy? I'm heartbroken, Emma, that the, the, the tale of Melena and Klepetan has passed you by. Uh, but these are a pair of breeding storks um, who have bred together um, every year since 2002. And, and Melena's just died. And so they, they would literally be watched every year by people in Croatia. They'd have webcams on the nest where Melena was waiting for Klepetan to return from his annual migration to Africa. And every year... He would come and people would rejoice. A couple of years ago, he, he didn't arrive on time and people were worried he'd died. But no, he turned up again. And this year, he turned up once more for the 19th consecutive year. Uh, but it does seem that uh, they're getting on a bit in, in stork years. Malena was actually a rescue stork uh, almost 30 years ago. And, uh, and, and she just died of old age earlier this month. Well, so uh, great I'm, national mourning. I think there's a bit of, there's a bit of um, sympathy to be extended to Malena. You know, she spent half a year waiting for her husband to come home. And she had 66 chicks. I mean, no wonder she, she went first, is all I can say. Yeah, too right. <laughs> Guy Delorney, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Ljubljana. You with Monocle 24. Let's go back to our panel today. Latika Burke joins me in the studio in London. Good morning, Latika. And Rob Cox in Dufourstrasse 90, contemplating the fate of uh, Malena and Klapitan, the, uh, the, the storks in Croatia, Rob. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just running, in, as I was saying, in Zurich this morning, and I ran by the Stork Hotel, and I was looking up, and, and to, storks are very much on my mind this morning. I'm glad to hear it. Latika, t- um, tell us about uh, stuff. That, anything else you've picked up in the papers today? Well, there's a very interesting story in the New York Times, um, Emma, which I really do think captures the zeitgeist of, of the world we live in in 2021. And this is in Haiti. Uh, they have asked the, U- the US, although it's not quite clear exactly what they've asked the US to do or, or how, but they have essentially asked the Pentagon for a military presence to go to Haiti. And the New York Times reports that the Biden administration is very, very reluctant to agree to this. And there's all sorts of briefings and anonymous quotes in here from a range of sources, one from a very senior official in the Biden administration, essentially saying they've got no intention 
intention of doing this. Uh, one from the Pentagon saying that uh, they don't even know what the Haitians exactly want them to do. And a couple in, of uh, quotes from people in Haiti denouncing the Haitian government's request even uh, for US intervention, saying that they, they don't want the US to be essentially their sheriff all the time. Now, all of this is in the wake of the assassination of the president last Wednesday. Uh, But I think that the response that we're seeing really is uh, following on from what I think Donald Trump has done in, in rewriting a more isolationist America here, an America that isn't quick to jump into other people's conflicts or wars if it if it goes that far, and certainly an America that is now much more alive to the idea of mission creep. This is a big problem, isn't it, for the United States, Rob, especially when you take the other story that's, that's dominating America when it comes to its military presence in the world, is the the rapid, almost skulking departure of the NATO-led US troops um, from the likes of Bagram Air Base, they will all be out of Afghanistan by the 31st of August. And in the meantime, in the last 48 hours, the Taliban have just made this spectacular land grab to, to regain control, almost waiting for the door to close before they go back in. What does Joe Biden do here? Well, I think I think there, you can't, and on the one hand, be pulling out of your longest war, twenty years in Afghanistan, at the same time committing troops uh, to Haiti. Don't forget Haiti. I mean, there is a sort of argument for it's it's in the hemisphere. There is a potential refugee crisis. We had that happen before. I think it was in the nineteen nineties uh, when you had similar unrest in Haiti, um, and you know that means people going on life rafts and things like that, trying to get themselves to Florida, which could be a humanitarian crisis. But there is a long history. In 1915, Woodrow Wilson sent uh, Marines into Port-au-Prince. It took 20 years. It wasn't until 1934 uh, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was able to pull those Marines out. So there is this question of ambition creep. There is this question around what is the U.S.'s, um, you know, what is its ambition in in using uh, troops to try to quell unrest like this? But you get in... Haiti is—it's kind of like Afghanistan on on the banks of of the of the uh, of Florida, right? I mean, what we don't even know what's happened here. The the assassination of the president is not clear exactly who what forces were behind it. I think there were something like twenty Colombians, former military Colombians, who were arrested. We still don't know what's going on. I think what he has said, uh, if if I think I think I read it in the New York Times, they they are talking about sending FBI and other um, uh, assistance to the government to try to sort out what's happened. I, I think until you've actually understood that, whether you you don't really want to go and commit yourself to more forces. Well, it, indeed. Yeah. And we've got the Haiti's police could get more training, I think is a suggestion, and um, military aid being given by the Department of States of Justice and Homeland Security. But what they don't want is a deployment of American forces, do they, Latika, with you know, when you get the image of boots on the ground, that is the thing that sticks. And you just said a really crucial word there, uh, Emma, aid. And I think that's a large part of this problem. Americans and many of us from Western countries around the world have watched millions and millions, if not billions of dollars, sent out the door in aid and looking here and saying, well, what are we getting for the aid? Now, obviously, people who study this closely know the huge benefits that foreign aid brings. But if you look at somewhere like Haiti, where the US has sent so much in the last decade even, um, 
you're asking, where's the stability that this was supposed to buy us? Where is the training already of local forces and equipping of local authorities that this was supposed to do? And if the aid isn't delivering bang for buck, why would a military intervention deliver bang for buck? Indeed. Uh, let's move on to another story from the New York Times. Uh, um, Latika, you had something to say about, isn't it? It's about good Gen Z. I hate that. It used to be Generation Z when I was old. Uh, Gen Z, free the world from email. Apparently, email is a bad thing now. Well, I, I never realised it was a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Email is, is dead to me. I don't know what generation <laughs> I am, though. I'm 37. People tell me I'm a, a millennial. But I've, I, my definition of a millennial is someone who uh, grew up without ever having an internet-free period in their lifetime. And I certainly did have an internet-free period in my lifetime. Um, but I think email is has been in long decline. In fact, I now have a policy of uh, being a journalist and saying to my contacts, if you really want to contact me, do not email me. I have three email accounts and I reckon there's at least 250,000 unread emails um, in all of them. And so I essentially say, WhatsApp me. Now, lots of MPs that I know um, have gone over to Signal, which is a kind of self-destruct messaging app, and they're only using Signal. So you can see that the digital communication methods that we began with, starting with email, are now in such decline where we're already transitioning to a thing where you can have people send you messages that literally only last for five minutes and you read it, it dies, and you go and you, you either ingest that information and carry on or you don't. But email to me has long been a curse and to be honest, there is no way I can keep up with the sheer volume of emails that are sent. Rob Cox, given the job that you do um, at Royce's Breaking Views, could you see email disappearing and everybody using their little stubby thumbs to, t- to, to file copy and, to, and to, to set up stories? I can't really see it that I mean, I think for filing stories, for editing stories and going back and forth, email is pre- But, you know, it, it is, uh, Latika's right. I mean, the the number of different thing, different funk, I'm, I have WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, Facebook, what's, uh, Instagram. It's just, it's actually getting to the point where while my email pollution was, was huge, now I just have general communications app uh, pollution, which is now get, you know, so many things will get lost. Um, that said, I will say, Gen, you're, the Gens. I have two Gen Z children. Um, to try to get them to read an email, to focus on an email, it's. I have to call them. You know, I have to. Yeah. So it's just it's gotten to the point, and and you know, an email is like, okay, did you see the thing from Delta, which has your flight details, and this is you need to respond. And no, you know, that's still. Oh yeah, let me check email. So. I don't know. I, we're going to have to go to some other thing, though, where we merge all of these apps. And you, someone actually, there it is. There's there's the business opportunity is to put you know one giant app that collates all of your apps and communications into one you know un un kind of uh, or giant forgettable mess. I think Emma, though, Slack is the big also unwritten uh, entry into this point. And Slack is very capable of doing exactly what Rob says or something like Slack. And that is collating all these alerts. And since Slack began in our company, for example, we barely use email to communicate with each other. And it's so much more efficient to just add a reaction instead of the dreaded reply alls. Um, I have a very, very vigilante approach to anybody who responds with reply all on email, let alone sending me an email in the first place. But I agree with Rob. I think collating all your notifications and communications is going to be the next frontier. And the person to clock that, I think, will have a very, very successful business model. Latika Burke and Rob Cox, thank you for joining here. I've just been taught a lesson. Never send you an email, Latika. I'll try and find you on WhatsApp instead. 
instead. Stay with us. We'll be heading back to Samaritz in just a moment. And we can join our editorial director, Tyler Brule, who's in situ. Welcome back, Tyler. You've uh, you've been shinning it across uh, Samaritz this afternoon in the last hour to, uh, to to bring us the latest from where where you are. Indeed, I'm in Saban. I do need to pitch in though on the the last conversation you were having. <laughs> I so thought you might. I think, I, I think I think the solution. I just walked past a very nice yellow Swiss post box. Enough said. Just leave, <laughs> just leave it there. And have a telephone as well. I wonder. I wonder. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. You, you know. You, you know me. I'm only. I'm only email and 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 inner circle SMS, and, and that's about as far as it goes. Absolutely. Just fine. Absolutely. I am now in Samaden, which is uh, just down the tracks from uh, Saint Moritz, and I'm standing in front of an absolutely beautiful villa. And uh, this is the last day of the Nomad Festival, and it is absolutely gorgeous, bringing together. Yeah. Really. Um, scores of fantastic exhibitors and just amazing, amazing artwork that has been brought in from around the world. There are some incredible uh, stone pieces from Mexico. And someone, someone said, incredible, how did you move these things you know, all the way from Mexico City, from your gallery, uh, all the way here, quite short notice as well. And someone was trying to figure out the logistics with UPS, et cetera. And of course, the, the Mexican art dealer said, oh, no, we just came. We brought it on our plane. And of course, the good thing is the runway. The runway is only 500 meters from here. What's caught your eye to go into the Brule household? <laughs> uh, I've seen some fantastic ceramics uh, this morning by uh, at, at a wonderful uh, Lebanese uh, dealer stand, uh, a, a woman based up in the Shouf Mountains, uh, who yeah, packed in her corporate life uh, and is now just taken to doing ceramics uh, in the Shouf, which I think sounds um, incredibly uh, alluring. I mean, obviously. Aside from, of course, uh, <laughs> the power outages and, and the ongoing political crisis in <laughs> Lebanon, uh, but it sounds like she's found her way uh, to peace, uh, certainly uh, around uh, in front of a kiln. Anyway, actually, it makes me think. What were you prepared? Let's work this out. What are we all prepared to give up? I think I'm going to bring in Latika and Rob for this. So this woman has possibly given up power and certainly email in order to pursue a finer life. Latika, what are you? What are you kicking into the touch to get rid of to, to enjoy a little bit more peace? Um, well, definitely email. I'm I'm very much pro sending actual hard copy letters. And I think I'm going to flip the question. I think if I'm in my final days, I'm taking a room full of books and no electronic devices. Put it that way. Fine. OK, Rob Cox in Dufourstrasse 90. What are you what are you giving up? What am I giving up? Um, I'm going to I'm going to go the other way. I'm giving up letters, Tyler. I'm going to I've decided because they've I have been going through my letters between my grandmother and grandfather from 1945. They're wonderful. They're they're You know, he was in the war. He was in, in, in Italy and she was in Connecticut. They're writing these enormous love letters. They're they're crazy. But it's amazing how they like comp- they're writing it across purposes because one letter will have been received uh, months, a month or weeks after the other letter was. Re- and it almost is like they're not speaking to each other. So there's something great about the immediacy of these of of electronic communications. And you can also sift through them as long to, as you do it. right. I had to write a letter about three weeks ago. I had to go and buy a proper fountain pen. It took me about four hours to get it right. Um, Tyler, <laughs> Tyler, are you going to are you going to give up letters and, and and written written stuff in order to to enjoy that immediacy and urgency of something pinging in your inbox? Well, I, I'm certainly only going to be sending or dispatching letters with good news because that, I mean, I thought Rob, what you were going to say is that watching in Switzerland when you get that sort of mid-gray envelope. 
which is usually said in economy, it never delivers good news. There's normally a speeding ticket in it. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> okay. a few of those. So you're going to give up speeding tickets, Tyler? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that when I get back to Zurich this afternoon and see, see how I fare on my drive. Tyler Brule and all my guests, thank you so much for joining us. That includes Rob Cox in Switzerland, Guy Deloney in Ljubljana, Latika Burke here in the studio in London and Tessa Shishkovitz uh, on the line as well. The programme was produced by Marcus Hippie and our studio manager in Zurich was Desiree Bandley and Nora Hole was looking after the sound here in London. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, enjoy the rest of your weekend and goodbye. 